this is Ken Finney from Capital Vantage Tutoring, and it's my job to get you past the SAE. So let's do this. Economic factors. What are we talking about? Well, we're measuring the climate, the economic climate, the key interest rates, monetary and fiscal policy, and international activities and the fundamental tools. So let's get going. So we're talking about economic factors here. So this is like the stuff, the economy, the big stuff, what's going on all the time around us. At least at worst, this chapter will help you understand some of the stuff when you hear it in the news and it should help you pass the exam. So we're, we're measuring how much the country is producing. There's two things for you, GNP or GDP. GNP is basically all the goods and services that US companies produce, whether they're being made here or outside the country. Okay, so they can be made here, China, India, whatever it is. That's GNP. GDP is the same thing, but it's only for stuff that's made in the US, okay? So like if you have a plant, if we build a GM and there's a plant in Mexico, that doesn't count. But if the GM plant is in the US, it does count. Hope that helps a little. So inflation, think of inflation as the rising cost of goods. So your money, if you have 20 bucks and, you're, and you have a movie ticket now, Right. So right now you can buy a movie ticket. It costs like 17, 18 bucks, whatever it is. In like six or seven years, it'll cost 20 or 25 dollars, maybe more. So your 20 dollars won't do that. That's called purchase of our risk, but it's inflation, rising cost of goods. And how we measure that is a CPI. OK, so the CPI is an actual measure of it. The consumer price index measures inflation. It's really looking at a basket of goods in a way and oh, what a family will buy each month and then comparing it month to month. It's not exactly that, but think about it. So if you buy, say your family of four buys $300 of food one week. If the next week it's 301, those same goods are 301, there's been you know $1 of inflation, whatever that percentage is, a third of a percent, whatever it is, but that's what, what they're doing. That's what the CPI is measuring. Now, the best way to fight inflation is equities, common stock, common stock, common stock, common stock, anything that invests in common stock. So common stock, equity mutual funds, equity ETFs, variable annuities, which are not the greatest investment, but they do invest in equities. So they have inflate, they fight inflation. Another one is like precious metals, commodities, gold, silver. They actually do very well during inflationary periods. So what happens also is that if you buy like a gold company or a gold ETF or something like that, a commodities ETF, and you hold it, that should keep pace with inflation or even do better with during a good economy, inflationary, that you should probably be okay if you buy those if you want to fight inflation. So the biggest two to fight inflation is equities or anything or their related products and commodities. If you have a fixed income security, whether it's a preferred, a bond, a fixed annuity, a CMO, anything that pays a fixed amount of money every time period, one of your fears over the long haul is inflation risk, because think about it. If you're getting 50 bucks every year, that's great at first, but then all the stuff you used to buy with that 50 bucks keeps going up and up and up. So you can buy less and less things every year. So you're getting, you're, you're losing purchasing power as you hold the fixed income. So fixed incomes do not really do well in inflationary times. They do really well in deflationary, but not good in an inflationary time. Mm -hmm. They might ask you on this is more of a series seven thing, but real interest rate is really your earning minus your earnings minus your inflation. So if you have like an 8% return, an 8% coupon, 
and inflation's 3%, you really aren't earning five. I mean, think about it. If I'm earning 8% a year, but inflation is three, I'm only doing 5% better because yes, I'm getting eight, but all my goods went up by 3%. So now I'm only earning five. So remember, real interest rate, which is really more of a series seven stuff, is your yield or your interest rate minus inflation. That's called the real rate. They may even say nominal minus inflation, but it's really your yield minus the inflation rate. They're not going to make you do the math. So what's deflation? Deflation is when prices drop. So that one's, that very, it never happens, okay? But the point is, deflation is when prices go down, whatever. The other one is disinflation, which is a different one. So disinflation is when prices are going up, but not as fast. So we have inflation, say inflation is 4%, 4%, 4%, and all of a sudden it starts going up 2 or 3%. That's disinflation still going up, but it's not going up as fast. It's like slowing down. Okay, so we have the business cycles as four. So we like to go like this. It'd be a horrible drawing, but you'll deal with it. So we have the GDP rising, that's expansion. Then we have the peak. Then we have contraction. Then we have the trough, okay? So expansion is here. This is on this way up. Expansion is when the GDP is rising, lots of jobs, lots of money, people getting jobs, low unemployment, but inflation's a thing. We'll come back to that. Now, during peak, it's kind of going up, but it's slowing down a little bit, and then it's going to start dropping. So, boom, we have contraction. That's when you know there's higher unemployment, lower inflation, maybe even deflation. Um, people are losing jobs. There's less money out there. GDP is dropping. And then the trough is when it kind of slows down. It's not going down as slow, and it's going to start going up again. So that's that's the trough and right into expansion. Okay, so there's different kind of indicators. Again, the, the books make you feel like you have to memorize all 36. Don't. It's 30, 36 of them, whatever you want to call. Don't worry about them. Just know what they do. So a leading indicator tells us basically what's going to happen in the future, the next 12 months or so. Okay. So that's what we're talking The leading indicators are telling us these indicators are going to tell us where we are in the next 12 months. The biggest one to remember is this S&P 500. That's really the one you have to worry about. Okay. Coincident tells us where we are now. Okay. So basically we're moving. So coincident economic indicators move with expansion, they, they're with it. They're right with it. They're in there. So basically like um, personal income, stuff like that. But again, do not need to know that. Industrial production is one. Don't worry about that. Just know that leading tells you where we're going. Coincident tells you where we are. And lagging tells us where we were to kind of confirm what we're doing. Okay. So lagging tells us where we were to say, oh yeah, you were right about that, Ken. You're so smart. Okay. Okay. So during inflationary or in, um, so basically we're talking about the effect of business cycle on the securities market. So during an expanding economy, okay, the rates will go up because also think about this. Okay. So what happens to the business cycles on your securities markets? Again, more of a seven self, but let's go into it. So if we're in an expanding economy, we're worried about inflation. So what happens is people will be less likely to buy what? Yes, bonds. They'll, buy, they'll be less likely to buy bonds, maybe sell them and buy stocks because what's the best hedge against inflation, which happens during expansion, is common stock. So what they're going to do is get kind of sell their bonds, which is going to drop the price, which is going to increase, increase the yield. Ah, so interest rates during an during a expansion are going to start rising because the prices are dropping and because the other part is the Fed is doing some stuff that's going to raise rates, which we'll get to. There are various rates, okay, that we deal with. So the highest one is the prime rate. What is the prime rate? It's what their banks lend to their best customers. So if, 
if, if a bank wanted to lend me money, I would not be their best customer. But let's say GE or there's a big choice now, but GM came in and wanted to borrow money from a bank. They would be a really strong customer, very high credit rating. So they would get the prime rate. Me, I would get probably get prime rate plus like 6% because I'm a bad risk. But the prime rate is like the bank's base rate. Each bank has their own. Okay. Now, that's their prime rate. Below that is the call rate, that the broker loan call rate. That's what banks lend to broker dealers for margin. So we got prime rate and we got broker loan rate. Okay. Next below that is a discount rate. The discount rate is what the Federal Reserve charges the banks. So it's what the Federal Reserve charges the banks to borrow money from them. Usually the only time banks borrow money from the Federal Reserve is when they're going below their um, reserve requirement. Reserve requirement is what the banks have to have on deposit at all times. So if they go below that, they can't close their books without it. So they go to the bank, they go to the um, Federal Reserve and borrow money at the discount rate. Now, normally what they do is they try to go to each other first. So like Bank of America will borrow from UBS, UBS will borrow from Jeffries, stuff like that. So that's going to be at the Fed funds rate. So it goes prime rate, broker loan call rate, discount rate, Fed funds. Hmm. PBDF. Pretty boys drive Ferraris. There you go. Pretty boys drive Ferraris. Prime rates are highest. Broker loan rates are next. Discounts are lower than that. And Fed funds lower than that. Now, remember, the Fed funds is negotiated every day between the banks. So it is actually the most volatile rate that changes every day. Good. So there are different types of stocks. There are classifications. So there are different classifications of stocks. Like they may ask you what's a cyclical, defensive, stuff like that. So let's talk about that. So cyclical means that it moves with the cycles. If the expansion, it does well. and contraction, it does bad. That's cyclical. They go with the, the cycles. Defensive, they're kind of steady. You know, it's like, it's like food, pharmaceutical, cosmetic, alcohol, tobacco, utilities, all, the, all those that no matter what the economy is, they're pretty steady. Everyone wears makeup. Everyone smokes. Everyone takes drugs, stuff like that. Okay? Everyone needs to eat. So those are steady. They, they do better in a bad economy because they're just steady up. They do worse in a good economy. Not that they do worse, not that they're doing down. It's just they're steady. So the market goes up, they're steady, goes down, they're steady. So you're pretty safe doing them, but you're going to underperform in a, in a good economy expanding, and you're going to overperform maybe in a bad economy. That's defensive. Growth stocks. Growth stocks, remember this. Growth stocks are like your betting. Those like the tech firms and stuff like that, that they're riskier. They usually don't pay a dividend. They have a high PE ratio, which is market price divided by the earnings. You're not going to have to do that math again for this test. But the P, if you see the word high PE, low dividend, or high retained earnings, what's retained earnings? Retained earnings is what we don't pay. We're retaining. I'm the company. I'm, not, I'm going to pay dividends. What I don't pay is called retained earnings. I hope that helps a little bit. Okay. So growth stocks really are riskier. They're looking for better than average returns. They don't pay a dividend and they have a high PE ratio. That's kind of where we're going to go in the test. Yes, real world is a little different, but just stick with it. Okay. Value stocks are ones that are like kind of out of favor. They usually have a dividend. Usually they have a low PE ratio. They're a little lower than where they should be. Like if you've done your math and you go, wow, it should be at $40 a share. And it's like 38 or 35 or 34. So it's below where it should be because it's, it's undervalued or out of favor or something like that. So, it's, so value investors are by value stocks. Now, if you see the word market cap, I don't think they're going to ask you the difference between large, middle, mega, all that crap. So think market cap is really how much the company is worth based on their stock position. So when you hear like Bezos or 
Elon Musk or Bill Gates is the richest man or the second richest man. It's based on this. So they take their portfolio and multiply it by the common stock price. That's why it changes all the time. But market capitalization is strictly the outstanding shares. How do we get outstanding? It's what I issued minus the treasury is my outstanding. Out issued minus treasury is outstanding. So I take the outstanding shares, multiply it by the market price, and that's my market cap. So if I had like 10 million shares outstanding and it's $25 a share, my market cap would be $250 million. If it went to $30 a share, it'd be $300 million. So easy. Just don't, don't go crazy on this. But remember, it's outstanding shares. What are outstanding shares? Outstanding shares are what are out there in trading. So if I issue shares, I issue them, they're issued. Treasury stock is if I buy them back as a company. If the company buys shares back, they're being retired, kind of they're gone. You don't have to pay dividends on them or anything. And then what's left over is outstanding. So a company may not have any treasury stock and issued may be the same as outstanding. Normally, it's not the case. So if I issue a million and I buy back 50,000 in my treasury, that leaves me 950,000 outstanding. Hope that helps. Okay, so the big thing here is that um, there's a big difference between monetary policy and fiscal. Okay, so we talk about fiscal first. Fiscal is really about using taxes, using taxes and corporate, corporate spending, government spending to help the economy. So Keynes believed that lower taxing and more spending would help, okay? Tax and spend programs. So basically what they're saying is that you can affect inflation and deflation doing that. So like if you're an expanding economy, maybe you raise the taxes and have less programs so that you're slowing the economy down. More taxes mean less money profit, so then people do less stuff. And during a contracting economy, you can drop the taxes and actually spend more. Like they create programs, like the highway programs, or like I would say, they would hire you to dig a ditch and then your brother or sister the next day to fill it in just to give you some money to help you spend. That's Keynesian, okay? And that's fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is set by the president and Congress. Like two years ago, they put a tax cut in and then they'll do it. And then if the economy is going well, they may bring it back to say we need more money so that when the economy is going well, they'll raise the taxes. They'll never tell you that you're doing it to slow your ass down, but they may tell you the lower taxes to make you do better, but they'll never tell you they're raising taxes to slow it down because that would be bad policy. Okay. Monetary policy is about the money supply. You're easing, 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 that's great, easing or tightening. So the Federal Reserve Board is in charge of the money supply, all the currency. So they control the currency. They can either ease or tighten. So I'm going to do this one out of order from the book a little bit, but I want to get here. So during here, we're expanding, right? So during here, we're expanding. So what the Fed, we're worried about hyperinflation. So the Fed is going to tighten. They're going to tighten. So what they're going to do is they're going to sell treasuries to the bank. And what happens? If you sell treasuries to the banks, the banks have to pay you, which means they have less money. So all the costs go up and it's harder to buy. It's harder to borrow and harder to invest. So it costs more. That, that's one way they do it. That's called open market operations. The other one they do is they raise the discount rate, that rate that the banks let borrow from them. If they raise that, the banks are going to pass it on to their people who borrow from them. So it's going to go up. So remember, I want you to remember this. Let's talk about this. D-O-R-M, dorm. Those are the four tools of the Fed. D is discount rate. O is open market operations. R is a reserve requirement. The reserve requirement is what they require the banks to have on deposit every time. They kind of never change that. I know Dodd-Frank, they did for the too big to fail, but in general, the Federal Reserve doesn't touch that. Oh, and margin, that's the reg T. So the margin is the reg T, okay? So reg T 
is always going to be 50% of the market value. They haven't touched that in years. They tweak it for rich people, but whatever. So the four tools, discount rate, discount rate, which is the rate that they move up and down, open market operations, which is buying and selling treasuries, R is a reserve requirement, what the banks have to have on deposit at all times, and M is margin. They're really only going to do the D and the O. The discount rate, they'll raise and tight, they'll raise and lower, and the open market operations, they'll buy and sell. These two, they won't touch. One, margin won't matter. And two, reserve requirement, they're so afraid of how much, um, what the over, overall effect of raising or lowering the discount, the multiplier effect, they call it. So they're never going to touch the reserve requirement. Okay. Now back to this. During peak, whatever, they can do whatever they want. But during contraction, they're worried that the economy is going to go down too fast. So they try to help it by lowering the discount rate. They're easing. They're making it easier to make money. They make it easier to borrow. And then they buy treasuries. So they buy treasuries to give the banks money. They're trying to create inflation. They want prices to go back up again. Remember, inflation is a good thing. Hyperinflation is bad. So again, expansion, we tighten by selling and raising. During contraction, we ease by buying and lowering. Okay, so we also have the yield curve. That's another thing we talk about. The yield curve is basically the average yields on treasuries, whatever you want to do. So normally, these drawings are horrible, but normally in a normal environment, normal, we don't like to use that word, but normal environment is when things are going fine. So that means usually if I'm going to borrow money for a longer time, it's going to cost me more. These are the yields, okay? These are the yields. These are the yields, and these are the years. So if I borrow money for five years, it'll cost less than if I borrow it for 10. So the, more, the longer I borrow money for on bonds, the longer the bonds, the higher the return, okay? So that's what's going to happen. Are we okay with that? I think so. So now that also means the Fed has been lowering rates here, which means eventually they're going to push them up because the Fed does the discount rate. That's what they move up and down. So they're only pushing down the discount rate up and down. That's a very short-term overnight rate. So with the short-term rates are going to react more. Remember, the rule is normally long-term bonds move more than short-term bonds. That's prices. On yields, it's the opposite. So when, when Fed is moving their rights down, the short-term ones will go down more. So this will steepen. This will get steeper and steeper. Now, what happens is during another economy, when they're do, you might get what they call an inverse. Is it inverse? Inverted. Okay. You might get what they call an inverted, inverted yield curve. Okay. So that means where it's weird that you borrow for a short time, you're going to get a better return than if it's long. Okay. That only happens when the Fed has been raising rates. They've been raising rates for a while, for a while, and they've been pushing them up. And it just takes a little longer for the long term to get up there. So they'll push this up. And then eventually, I, can, I don't think I can make it spin, right? I don't think I can do that. Let's see if it works. Well, let me do it. I think, oh, yeah, because it's a drawing. Uh, nope. Well, let me do it. So basically, so, the, so an inverted yield curve is when the Fed has been tightening and raising the rates, which means the short-term rates will move up quicker than the long, and eventually the long-term rates will catch up. So the inverted goes higher, means the short-term rates are higher, which is not a normal thing. It's inverted. Because imagine borrowing money for four years and paying more than if you borrowed for 30 years. So they raise the rate, and then eventually the long-term rates follow. I'm going to go a little deeper into it, into the open market operations. So when the Federal Reserve buys treasuries, it's called a repo, okay? So the Federal Reserve is going to buy treasuries from the banks. 
the banks will sell them the treasuries and have cash now, which they can lend out. That works. Now, when the Federal Reserve wants to do a reverse, they're going to sell treasuries to the banks, and then the banks have to buy it, which means they have less money to lend out, which means it's more valuable, so they're going to raise the rates. Another tool of the Fed, which is a really thing called moral suasion. So moral suasion is when they, they come, basically what happens is they vote on they vote on whether to raise or lower the discount rate, and then they come out and make a speech and go, ah, we decided not to move it, but we might. We might change it. So you guys better be careful and try to slow your ass down. So they're basically trying to get everyone to go, oh, hey, its economy is getting better, so let's do some stuff. Or the economy is getting worse, let's try to make it better. So that's the moral suasion is them making speeches and trying to get people to do stuff on their own, just rah, 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 like cheerleader. Okay, so the balance of pay. So exchange rates affect exchange rates affect the economy. So we always say we want a strong dollar, but that's not true. We actually want a weak dollar because if we have a weak dollar, remember currencies kind of are different. So like the pound goes up and down compared to the dollar versus the Canada dollar versus Australia dollar versus the euro versus the yen, all that. So the dollar is the rock. Dollar never moves really. Just remember that. So there's no options on the dollar ever. So now if the if the rates, if the foreign currency goes higher, it's going to be cheaper to buy or to buy US goods, but more expensive for us to buy theirs. So we'll export more and import less. So that's a good thing for us. So if the dollar drops for the economy, that's actually better in a way because then more we're getting money from outside the country coming into here, buying our stuff. Like when the rates are low, you see a lot of people at Disney. When the rates are high, you'll see less because it's mostly just US people. Because if you're in the country and the foreign currencies go up and down, you don't notice unless you're going to buy foreign stuff. I'd see your goods go up a little bit, but it's not that big a deal. But as far as what they call the balance of payments, the balance of payments is there's either a trade surplus or a trade deficit. So a trade surplus happens when the dollar is weaker and people buy our stuff, we're exporting. So we're getting their money and selling our goods. That's a good thing. The deficit is if the dollar um, goes up, okay, that means it's going to be harder to buy harder to foreign countries to buy our stuff, but it's easier for us to buy theirs. So we're going to have a trade deficit because we're going to be importing more than we're exporting. Remember, a deficit is when we're importing more than we're exporting. A surplus is when we're exporting more than we're importing. And why would we want to export more? Because we're getting money from somewhere else. We always want to be a net positive exporter. Okay, the balance sheet, financial statements, don't worry about this too much. Just understand the ba balance sheet. There's the balance sheet, which basically is assets and liabilities. And basically, assets and liabilities. That's what they have. It's not cash flow. It's not income. It's not anything. It's just your assets and your liabilities. And that's how you come up with your net worth kind of thing. Do not try to worry about that. If you see stockholders' equity, it means net worth. So on the balance sheet, we have different kind of subsections. So one of them is current assets. Basically, Current assets are assets, either cash or things that can be converted into cash within a year. Usually a year is a short time. A fixed asset is basically long-term, okay? So it's like property, lands, buildings, equipment. Those are long-term. Intangible, things that we can't touch. It's like the name, okay? Like it's our franchises, trademarks, patents, stuff like copyrights, goodwill. We can't touch it, but it's worth something. Like, I, I don't want to bring up the name, but think about Trump. So he says he's worth $8 billion. He was really physically worth $2 billion. But he assumes his name at the time was worth $6 billion, the Trump name because he was franchising it out. I don't want to hear anything back and forth. I'm just saying that that's what an intangible thing is. Like a Coca-Cola, their product, their formula, they say is worth billions and billions of dollars, a formula for Coke. 
That's an intangible asset. Liabilities is what you owe. A current liability is something that's due in a year or less. It's called a payable. Long-term liabilities are like bonds and stuff like that. Bonds, long-term bank loans, anything more than a year. So current, and if you see the word current, it means a year or less. Long-term means more than a year. The income statement is all about profit and loss. Just keep that in mind. You're not going to have to rip apart a balance sheet, especially not on this exam. So you have to know that the income statement is about profit and loss, money going in and out. Okay, guys, that's it. 